We have been uh, walking through the book of Malachi. We're at the, uh, at the last section, and it's the end of the Old Testament. On the facing page of mine is the, uh, is the New Testament. So here we are at the end. It is the last thing written for 400 years before that New Testament begins. And so this is that transition, the last thing in a sense that God says in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, before 400 years of prophetic silence and the New Testament opens with the gospel. Really, the book of Malachi is a, a call to God's people to return from their backsliding. That Israel has had uh, forsaken in so many ways their heart for the Lord, and so uh, the obedience to the covenant, the obedience to His law, to start, they have stopped serving Him uh, with their whole heart. And the Prophets, in, in the way that they do, Malachi, in a prophetic voice, calling God's people to repentance. This morning we are in uh, chapter 3, verse 13, through the end, through 4, cha- uh, verse 6. Hear then the word of God. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? Well, you have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of keeping His charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. And then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. And the Lord paid attention and He heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. And then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked. Between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and the evildoers will be stubble. The day is coming that shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, and so it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings, and you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. And behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day that the Lord, when the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Pray with me. Our Father, we have come this morning gathered as your people. We gather as those who fear you and who esteem your name. And who long to serve you as sons and daughters. That we may be found written in that book of remembrance. So Father would you speak to us afresh this morning. From the prophetic voice of Malachi. Will you speak to our hearts and call us to yourself. And renew in us a heart to serve you as your children. For we ask and pray it in Jesus name. Amen. 
This week, Fox News paid Dominion, a company that makes voting machines, whatever you think about all of that. It's not my point. My point is they paid them $800 million in a defamation lawsuit. Defamation is a word you can hear in there to defame, right? To, to, to take away fame, defamation or libel is, is to make false statements that damages a person's reputation. It defames them. It harms them in the eyes of others. The case didn't go to court, settled out of court, so apparently they didn't have the evidence or they would have defended themselves and saved themselves $800 million. It's a lot of money. That is a lot of money. But it, it goes to say, it goes to tell us that to, to, it is wrong to say things or to spread rumors that are not true. And that part of the, you know, the amount of that settlement, again, what, whatever you think about it, the amount of the settlement is saying this is serious and you, can, you can't do it, you shouldn't do it. And even the law, even the law of the land, even human law says it is wrong to damage another's reputation to negatively affect how they're viewed by other people, to speak in such a way. Well, here in this text, God accuses Israel of defamation, of defaming him. He says in verse 13, you, your words have been hard against me. They've been strong against me. It's a hard word there. They're, they're strong against me. They're serious words of accusation against me. In verses 14 to 15, he tells us what those words are, what they're about. As you read them, you should recognize them if you've been in, in the series in his fourth disputation, not the last one, but the one before it, was essentially the same discourse, the same accusation against his people, the same thing that he was saying. I don't know if it's being repeated for emphasis because the scripture does that. He comes back around to this, to where their hearts are because it's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks and what they are speaking or because their slander, because their defaming of him has gotten worse. He says, your words are hard against me. They've grown louder. They've become bolder. They're more insolent, defiant. The people respond as they have throughout the whole book of Malachi. Who, us? What did we say that has gotten you angry? In verse 14, he tells them what they've been saying. He says, you have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit? What is the point of keeping his charge, of obeying the law, of doing what is right, or walking in, as in mourning, of, in, in repentance before the Lord of hosts. What's the point? What's the profit? And now we call the arrogant blessed. This is Israel saying that, that the arrogant, those who are, are, are standing against the Lord, are blessed. Evildoers, they not only prosper, but they test God, they put Him to the test, and they escape. Nothing happens. No lightning came down and struck them. They do what they want, and they get away with it. The wicked go unpunished, and the righteous go unrewarded. It, it is vain to serve him. 
Notice he uses the same two words in verse 15 when he says it is, it is what profit is there. You know, why should we go around walking as in mourning, as in repentance? In verse 15, he picks those up and he says it is the arrogant who are blessed, who are not mourning, who are not sad. They are blessed. They are happy. Blessed in the, in the scriptures, happy are those who, it's that word. So we see the same two words. The arrogant are blessed. They're happy. They're not mourning. And evildoers prosper. What, is, what does it prosper us to serve the Lord? Evildoers are the ones prospering. They're the ones who are happy. They're happy in their sin. They put God to the test and they get away with it. There are no immediate consequences to their bad attitudes, their bad behavior, their rebellion, their defiance. They grow bold in their sin. And the reasoning of Israel, or at least some in Israel, because he speaks to two groups of people throughout here, there are those who are faithful and their hearts are with him. And there are those whose hearts are backsliding, who are drifting away and who are taking on these attitudes. They reason if the wicked get away with it, we can get away with it. If the wicked go unpunished, we may as well join them. Because there's no profit over here, we may as well. The profit and the happiness are over here. And enjoy my sin and nothing seems to happen. It's more profitable. We're happier if we do what we want rather than what is right. And so they cast off obedience. We're happier if we don't obey. And he's, if you've followed through the book of Malachi, you can read it as he spoke to the priests in chapters 1 and 2 and about their lame sacrifices and not following the law and pro- providing pure sacrifices, right? If their reasoning is we're not gonna f- we don't have to follow the law, we can get away with it. It's more profitable to give up the lame ones and to keep the good ones. We see that in chapter 2, Said so we'd be happier if we divorce our wives. In chapter three, they say it'll be more profitable if we stop tithing and don't bring in the full tithe. Right? So all these different aspects of the laws are where they're profiting themselves, they're making themselves happy, they're serving themselves in their sin. They have a form of godliness because they go to the temple and they bring these lame sacrifices. They're still bringing sacrifices. So they have this form of godliness. They're still going through the motions of church, so to speak. But they're denying the truth and power of God. Their outward attendance is, their formal compliance is betrayed, contradicted by a heart of rebellion and selfishness of disobedience. They've moved away from God. They've moved away from God in their hearts. They've moved away from God in their obedience. In their private lives, there's this formal bringing of lame sacrifices, but in their private lives, their hearts are not with Him. And they're doing what they want. They're not tithing. They're divorcing their wives. They're not worshiping with their whole heart. They maintain this formal worship in public, but their hearts are far from Him. And my friends, we can lie to ourselves. We can fool the community. We We can, like they are, maintain an outward show of obedience, a form of godliness, an attendance. We can fool the community, we may even be lying to ourselves, but what this text is driving home in so many ways is that God knows. 
and that this is written for us. All things that are written in the Scripture are for, are for us, for the church, for His people. The truth is that God knows those who are truly His, whose hearts are truly and inwardly belonging to Him, and so serve Him as sons and daughters. And those people are described as those who fear Him. Three times throughout the text, He speaks of those who fear Him. It's twice here in verse 16, and He picks it back up again in verse 2 of chapter 4, when He talks about that day and what the destiny of that day will be like. He, he speaks of those who fear the Lord. And so here in verse 16, twice, He said, Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. The faithful ones. Right? The Lord paid attention. The Lord heard them. Right? He knows those who are His. He knows the secret thoughts of their heart. He knows what their private life is. They know whether they serve Him as, as sons and daughters or whether they are doing an outward formal show, bringing lame sacrifices to temple. But in their private life, they are far from Him. They are those who fear Him, as He says, for those who fear him in 16, he goes on to say, the Lord paid attention to them and he wrote a book of remembrance. It was written before him of those containing the names of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. Right? He has a book. He knows those who are his, the book of life. And he says, he's in a, and there is a book of remembrance before him of those who feared him. What does it mean to fear him? It is, it is that all it's not a, a servile fear. It is that the fear of, a, of children to their parents, they, there should be an awe, there should be a respect, there should be a, a love, there should be a sense of obedience to them that, that those who fear him, he says, and esteemed his name. They respected him, they honored him in their hearts and in their lives and in their obedience. Those who serve and obey him, which is the end of 17. I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. It says that those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. Right? The ungodly are defaming God. But they're not the only ones talking. Those who feared the Lord were also talking to one another. Encouraging one another. It's like we're doing right now. Those who feared the Lord talked to one another. And the Lord heard them. God hears them both. He hears the ungodly defaming him. And he hears those who fear him and esteeming his name in worship. He hears them both and he knows those who are his. In whose hearts there is honor and worship. He knows them. In fact, he, he wrote a book about them. Right? He's got a book that is about them. written before God. In Revelation 3, verses 4 to 6, Jesus is writing to the churches. And so we have these three chapters with seven letters to seven churches in Revelation 3, and he writes to one of the churches. He's having the same conversation that Malachi's having with Israel, Jesus is having with his church, which is to call them to repentance. And he sees there are some who are defaming his name, and there are some who fear the Lord and esteem his name. And he says, yet the, you have a few names in Sardis, in the church in Sardis, who've not soiled their garments, 
who have not defamed me, not just with their words, but with their lives. There are people that have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy, the one who conquers, the one who perseveres, the one who stays faithful, who walks with me, loves me, and worships me to the end, will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name from the book of life. There's the book of remembrance. It's a letter to the church saying there are some who've sold their garments. Don't go that route. Don't follow them down that road. Don't listen to what they're saying. But to the one who conquers, I will never blot their name out of the book of life. I will confess his name, her name, before the Father and all of his angels. So he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Is saying to his people, is saying to us, what is he saying? To return from our backsliding, that our name would be written in this book. Some had soiled their garments and were going the way of the world. And he's calling us to faithfulness. And so in verse 17, he says, Those who feared the Lord, they spoke with one another, and their names were written in this book. And he goes on to say in verse 17, and they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. They shall be mine in the day when I make up my treasured possession. Right? This is a, an Old Testament concept, a word that he's used a few times where Israel was his treasured possession. It was it was like his, his, his very own personal. Some have said it was used like a, a, a personal, your, your, your personal money, like birthday money you got, and you can spend it any way you want. Like it's your special possession. It belongs to you uniquely and is special to you in that way. And he says that there is a day coming when he will, out of all Israel, not all Israel is Israel. Paul says, and he's saying the day is coming. He's telling Israel, the day is coming when I will sift out even Israel and I will make up my treasured possession, not of anyone who was born in Israel or ethnically Israel, but of all of those who feared my name and did not defame me with their life and their words. They shall be mine. They shall be mine. It's not vain. To serve him is what he is telling his people. It's not vain. If you love the Lord and you're seeking to live a life that is pleasing to him, he says, you shall be mine on that day. The day when the Lamb's book of life is opened and he gathers those names in his treasured possession as his own peculiar people. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, he says, My beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, serving Him, knowing what? Knowing that your labor is not in vain. Right? That is the message of Malachi to the church in Israel, to those, you know, be steadfast and immovable. There are those who are defaming my name, you who fear my name, be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work because your labor is not 
in vain. The righteous will be rewarded and the wicked will be punished. You may not see it now, but that day is coming. The ungodly are saying it is not profitable. That you'd be happier if you didn't obey his word. If you just gave a lamer sacrifice, didn't gave but not the whole tithe, you know, where you marry the person that you want, divorce the one if you, he says all these things that are part of his law, part of faithfulness, the fabric of faithfulness, and they're saying you'll be happier if you do your own thing. The righteous, those who fear the Lord and esteem his name, never defame his name and serve him as sons. I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him, his child. We are not a perfect people. He's not saying that the righteous aren't those who do it perfectly or obey the law perfectly. The righteous are those who love him and are seeking to live a life that is pleasing. And where we fail and as we fail, we do mourn and repent. And it is profitable to mourn and repent before the Lord and return to his word and to obedience. We're not a perfect people. But when we genuinely seek to please him, when Jesus is our great treasure, when he is the pearl of great price, when we have given up all things so that we may possess the the pearl, the, the treasure which is Christ himself, if he is your great treasure, he says, and you are his. And on that day, he is his treasured possession. You will be gathered as his bride, his people, his body. He's saying serving him is never in vain. Whatever light and momentary trial or difficulty or giving up or, that you have to, to travel through in this way, he says it cannot be compared to the eternal weight of glory that is yet to be revealed. He says a day is coming when those who serve me as sons will be remembered and they will be mine. And the mark of those who fear him and esteem his name is just that in the end of 17, they serve him as sons and daughters. They may not do it perfectly. They may stumble along the way. It may be hard going at times. There may be some mourning and repentance involved, but they follow the bent and drift of their lives is to please him, to serve him. My friends, the only certain mark, I say this sometimes, it is so obvious, but sometimes, I think sometimes in the church we don't always recognize it because there are those who will say, I'm a follower of Jesus, but you know the only certain mark of a follower of Jesus is that they're following Jesus, right? And, the, and they talk about the, the perseverance of the saints and what is the you know, only certain mark of the perseverance of a saint is the saint persevering in faith. It is the mark of it. Those who serve him as sons. He says the day of distinction is coming. Verse 18, he says, then once more you shall see the distinction. You don't see it now. You're complaining you don't see it now. You see the line is blurred. And so you think you're going to cross over the line. You don't see the distinction is your complaint. It is vain to serve him. The righteous go unrewarded. The wicked Go unpunished. 
But he says you will see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve God. The distinction has been unclear. But God says, I'll clear it up. God says the day of clarity is coming. There will be a division. There will be a distinction between the sheep and the goats. Right? There will be that great day as Jesus describes it. Those who serve me and those who do not serve me. Right? The mark of the one who fears him is those who serve him. The mark of the righteous, the one who serves him. The wicked, the one who does not serve him, but serves himself. Casts off his law, casts off his way, and does his own thing. And so in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Behold, that word is the one that's meant to get your attention. Hear me. Understand. See this. Get this. The day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant... Right? We just said back in verse 15, it is the arrogant who are blessed. And here God is saying, no, the distinction will be made clear one day. He says, when, when a burning oven, when all the arrogant that you're jealous of right now, all the evildoers who seem to be prospering that you're jealous of right now, they will be stubble. The day will set them ablaze. And they will have neither root nor branch, meaning it is to the ground and... God says there are two kinds of people in the world. Those who serve him and those who do not. In verses 1 to 3, he's laying out there's a destiny, two destinies. Verse 1, for those who do not. Verse 2 and 3, for those who do. Verse 1, it is for those who do not fear God, for those who do not serve Him, who have chosen to serve and to live for themselves. They're more at home pursuing their prosperity and their happiness in the world than as sons and daughters serving their father and their king. But in verses 2 and 3, He returns then to those who fear My name. Two kinds of people in the world. Those who fear My name and those who do not. For those who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings, and you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. You'll tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. They were burned down root and branch down to the soil. On the day when I act. See, their complaint is God has not acted. Right? The complaint is that, that the wicked do wicked things. They are defiant and they are arrogant. And they seem to prosper. They seem to be winning. And God has not acted. He has not struck them down. Right? He has not shown himself to be holy and righteous. And God is assuring them, and we've heard this so many times in, in understanding what the Christian life is, is this journey but to that day. When he says the day is coming, when I will act. For those who fear the Lord and persevere to the end, he says there's a very different future. The distinction is crystal clear between between verses 1 and verse 2 of chapter 4. For you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise. 
with healing in its wings. We recognize there one of the beautiful names of Jesus, who is the sun here, the sun, S-U-N, like a blazing sun of righteousness, but we know it is also S-O-N. He is the sun of righteousness who blazes like the sun in his holiness, in his perfection, and Christ will come, which is the essence of this last book and last chapter of the Old Testament, looking toward the coming of Christ, and he is saying the day will come when the Son of Righteousness will rise. He will, you will see him when he comes in the first coming, but in, the, in its fullness and in its full zenith, the sun will be in his zenith in his second coming when he comes again. And he will come, it says, to heal his people. The sun dispels the darkness. He heals and he saves his people. And then he gives this picture. He says, you will be like calves, leaping like calves from the stall. Like the stall was thrown open and the calf comes running out. There's this picture. However you hear it, it is a picture of youth. It's a picture of health. It's a picture of joy. Right? It's a picture of freedom. As the calf leaps out. In some ways it's a picture of the happiness and freedom that Paul describes in Romans 8.21 when he speaks of the freedom, of the glory, of the children of God. Of those who served him like sons and daughters. The glory of the freedom of the children of God when the stall is thrown open and there is the, the leaping free joy of God's children. Every discourse in this book has been a rebuke for casting off obedience. Casting off God's law of choosing not to obey it. Choosing not to be faithful. And God has been rebuking his people for choosing not to serve him. In chapter 2, verse 8, he says, you have turned aside from the way. Right? That's the problem. You've backslidden. You've turned aside from the way. And he's calling his people back calling his people out. You have corrupted the covenant. You are not keeping the law. You do not serve me as sons. And so in verse 4, he says, remember the law. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes, the, the rules, the commands, the commands that I've given you. Remember them. In light of that day that he just described, in light of the day where verse 1 and verse 2 and 3 are the destinies of those who serve him and then don't serve him, and and he says, remember the law, serve me. Love me. Sometimes in the Old Testament we draw too hard a line between the law and, and serving God, and in the Old Testament sometimes we see, you know, doing what's right according to the law as a, as a hard legal hard thing, and, you know, and then the love of the Lord is something you don't really get to the New Testament. And actually, they're both in both Testaments, and they're both functioning in similar ways in both Testaments. And in the Old Testament, when Jesus says, when Jesus is asked, what is the greatest command? He gives him the greatest command out of the Old Testament, and the greatest command that he says in the Old Testament is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. That's an Old Testament greatest command. And the law simply Keeping the law is part of loving him and being faithful to the one you love with all of your heart and all of your strength in doing what he commands us to do. Not saying anything different than he says in John 14, 15, which is if you love me, you will keep my commandments. 
Right? These two things are not, whether Old Testament or New Testament, where in the Old Testament he calls them to keep his commandments, he's calling them to love him as a father. Serve me as sons and daughters. Obey me because you love me as sons and daughters. He puts it in the context of, of the family, that I'm your father. And Jesus says the same thing. He doesn't say, oh, well, in the New Testament, you can forget about doing anything I say. In fact, he says at one point, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and then do not do what I say? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's this call to obedience, to faithfulness, to serve him as sons and daughters. And so we reach at the end of the Old Testament. As I just pointed out, Jesus picks it up in the New Testament. Serve me as sons and daughters. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. That's where he left off, and that's where he picks up. But Jesus comes with healing, the, the son of righteousness, to save us and deliver us from our, from our sin and from our failure, and to set us free like the calf out of the stall, to, to love and serve God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind. But we're free then to serve him. We're free then to do as he commands. This is a transition as he ends the Old Testament. We see it particularly in verses 5 and 6. And we spoke about this uh, in, in the previous couple of chapters because it's the same promise. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. I will send you Elijah. He's anticipating that day that he's talking about. Now, in, in the prophet's mind, there is a day. Uh, in the reality, in the way we see it, that day is divided between his first and second coming. There is that first coming where some of this is, is fulfilled in Jesus being there, and then it is consummated in his fullness when he comes again. And he says, and before that awesome day, before the era of Messiah, and all of this comes to pass, I'm going to send Elijah. And we know that, that, that coming Elijah was John the Baptist. Jesus himself tells us. In Matthew eleven fourteen. he says of John, he is Elijah who is to come. So that awesome day that you're waiting for, that Elijah comes before, is here because John, is the one who comes before. He's the one who comes in the spirit and the power of Elijah. It is a promise of Messiah. He is pointing to his coming and to his second coming. Now let's work backwards here and just take a few applications from the text or encouragements from the text. God is encouraging us to keep our eyes on the horizon. Right? He speaks of that day over and over again. And he's telling us again and again, live for that day. That day is coming. They say that the, the distinction is unclear right now. He said the day is coming when it will be clear, crystal clear. Live for that day. Not now when it's hard for you to see it. And he says it over and over again, working backwards from verse 5 in chapter 4. He says the great and awesome day of the Lord. In verse 3, he calls it the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. In verse 1, he says the day that is coming like a burning oven. And again, the day that is coming that will set them ablaze. Back in verse 17, it's the day when I make up my treasured possession when he will say, you are mine. He says that day is coming. 
There are those whose eyes have been fixed on temporary prosperity, on temporary pleasures, on temporary happiness, on whatever they could see right before them, whatever was the, you know, no delayed gratification, the immediate gratification, the profit now, right, the happy now. And he says, don't fix your eyes on what is temporary. He's saying the same thing that Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 18. Paul says, look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Why? Because the things that are seen, they're transient. It won't always be like this, right? And whatever gain you have, whatever profit you have, whatever happiness you have, he says it's transient, it's temporary, and it's not going to last. And so he says the things that are unseen are the things that are eternal, to serve him as sons and daughters, to fix our eyes on the horizon, to live for the day when we would hear Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant. You served me as sons and daughters. He says, keep your eyes on the horizon. Look to the horizon. In verse 16, working backward, he speaks of this book of remembrance that is written before the Lord. And he is telling us, I know who you are. I know those who belong to me. I know my people. They are mine. The day is coming when I will show them to be mine. I will gather them as a treasured possession. But he is telling us he knows his own. Now, we tend to look on the outside. And so sometimes we can fool each other. Sometimes we even fool ourselves if all we do is look on the outside of ourselves. And we think, I'm great, until we get a good look at our own hearts. Right? God looks at the heart. Remember in the Old Testament, the story of Saul and David. And Saul was chosen because he was tall, he was strong, he was handsome. Like he was this guy, and it turns out that he was full of himself. And ultimately, said the Lord said that his reign is going to end, and he's not going to do it. And I am going to Pick a man after my own heart. 2 Timothy 2.19 says, God's firm foundation stands. It's a similar situation similar to this. There are those who are going astray and saying hard things and wrong things. And he's speaking to the church where there's faithfulness. And he says to them, God's foundation stands bearing the seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Both of these are the seal. God's foundation that still stands firm, Old Testament into the New Testament, the seal of the foundation is the Lord knows those who are His, whose hearts are after His own heart, and they that name the name of the Lord serve Him as sons and daughters. They depart from iniquity. He knows these, First John 3, 3, everyone who names His name, everyone who thus hopes in Christ, purifies himself as he is pure. They have a heart for God. And so finally in verse 16, he says, those who feared him spoke to one another. And this is how we end up, you know, there's this, this, it's a good Bible word, backsliding. The Baptists use it more than we do. They get a lot more play out of it than we do. But I think we should adopt that word. It's a Bible word and it describes very well a problem that we see in our own lives and the ebb and flow of our walk with Christ, the, temp- the, the, the tendency to backslide, the tendency to slip in the wrong direction. 
But one of the ways that we avoid going that way and that we do keep our eyes on the horizon and, 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 and have the seal in our own lives, a heart after him, is that God's people spoke with one another. And the Lord heard them, right? They encouraged one another. They said the right things. They talked of God and who he is and the value of, of being faithful. They talked of his law and his word and his ways. And they thought that it was awesome. They gathered in his way. And he said that they, they talked to one another. They spoke with one another. They encouraged one another, as Hebrews tells us, to encourage one another while it's today, to stir one another up to loving good deeds. And that's what they were doing. And that's what we continue to do is to be part of small groups or to be in relationships with God's people, to be in worship on a Sunday morning as you're able to be here so that we can do what we're doing, which is those who feared the Lord, talked about him and about the difficulties of following him, but the the reward and the glory of the day when we will be with him. And so God is calling us to live by faith. He's calling us to live by faith and not by sight, to live by his word and to obey his word and just not how it feels today and what it, in ourselves we want to pursue apart from him. The wicked in this passage lost sight of God. Their hearts had grown cold. They got to the place, and you can get there, that it's, it's vain to serve him. It's better just to do our own thing. And God is reminding us it is not vain. Whatever our struggle, whatever our temptation, he's calling us out of our backsliding, calling us back to himself. He says the day is coming when the Son of Righteousness will rise in his glory it will be a great and awesome day. It will be a day where there is a blazing fire for those who thought it was vain and pointless to serve him. But for those who served him as sons and daughters, he says it will be a day of healing. It will be a day of grace. It will be a day of great joy. It is a day that ought to inform and motivate every day between now and then. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that is living and true. We thank you that you don't leave us where you find us and that even now as we wrestle in our own hearts, where are we with you? What are the hard thoughts that we have about you? What are the ways that we are not obeying and not following the ways that we are not serving you as sons and daughters? And whatever the temptations there are, Father, have mercy on us. We pray that the Son of Righteousness would rise with his healing wings that he would heal our backsliding, that he would accept our repentance, that you would fill us with your spirit, that you would lead us in the way that is everlasting, that we may follow you and serve you and love you, that we may conquer and have our names written in the book of life. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.